morning and welcome to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Good morning to all of you joining us locally by radio and streaming online. We appreciate you tuning in. Today is Sunday, November 18th, 2018, and I am your host, Hertzy Hertz. I'm here in studio with Joseph Holmrich and our special guest, Richard Logan. This is an open conversation, and we welcome and encourage listener interaction with your phone calls to 952-946-6205, your emails to radio at mnatheist.org, you can tweet us at at Atheist Talk, or check out our Facebook page, Atheist Talk. The phone number is only available when we are live, but you can always email or tweet whether we're live or whether you're listening to this podcast. Humanists have been a longtime ally of atheists, working with us on things like the separation of church and state. Richard, a longtime humanist, is here to talk about with us about his the views he has and the expertise he carries. <laughs> All right, Joseph, Richard, good morning and welcome to Atheist Talk. Good morning, thank you. Morning, Hertzie. All right, Joseph, I know that you, you, were, you were scribbling like this whole time I was talking, so I know you've got a million good questions. Why don't you go ahead and start? Richard, would you get our audience started this morning by telling a little bit about your background and uh, your uh, professions you've had and, and uh, how you got to here? Yeah, it's an interesting story. Um, the, most, uh, the most recent big event is... Uh, how how we ended up, my wife and I ended up in Minneapolis, and it was uh, the birth of a granddaughter. I'm from back east originally. I went to college back east, but I went to graduate school at the University of Chicago. My undergraduate major was anthropology with an unofficial minor in psychology. My doctorate is in uh, human development. Uh, uh, my first uh, teaching experience at the university level was at the University of Nairobi for a couple of years, right out of graduate school, green young kid. Uh, it was an earth-shaking, for me, I didn't shake the earth, but the experience shook me, and I learned a lot. And, uh, you know, one of the things that happens when you when you spend time with people in other parts of the world is you realize that there's more than one way of thinking about things, and then you start thinking, Gosh, at most only one, only at most only one religion could be right, correct? Because there are so many dozens of religions and so on. Um, you know, backing up a little farther, I was uh, I'm the son and grandson of Methodist ministers, but they were both uh, fairly progressive. Um, and my father was a great intellectual, uh, highly educated. And uh, my parents uh, were very determined to raise me and my brother to make up my own mi- make up our own minds about things, and that's uh, that's what I did. And then I realized at some point in my middle adult years that gosh, I'd been a humanist all of my all of my adult life, and it's. Uh, having been an anthropologist and worked in other cultures, it's. Uh, more than obvious that the the human world is the way it is because of what people do, and that's really kind of the the starting point. And uh, and uh, I've been, I really respect what I've learned from listening to atheists and uh, listening to humanists, and particularly since I married a nice Jewish girl, a nice secular Jewish girl, fifty years ago. Um, 
that uh, Jewish intellectual culture was very, very appealing to me. So I, I gravitated toward what they call humanistic Judaism. I talked a little too much, and so I'm now president of the Society for Humanistic Judaism, <laughs> which leads us to the panel thing that we had uh, in uh, Minneapolis back on October 11th at the First Unitarian Society, where humanists and atheists and humanistic Jews got together to talk about building a strong coalition of reason in the Twin Cities area and in uh, Minnesota. So make sure you make sure you guys talk and ask me questions so I don't just keep talking and talking. Oh, no, see, I <laughs> like it when the guest does most of the talking because then I don't have to talk. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I usually have about 50 or 60 questions. Go for there. it. All righty. Well, you know, as George Carlin said, I've been an atheist ever since I reached the age of reason. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, I've always wanted to increase the size and the activism of secular groups, and uh, it might just be my constant dissatisfaction with progress, but I know that's a big thing for you. What do you think? Are you satisfied with the organizing efforts progress of secular groups? Have you seen, um, there's a recent news article that indicates there is continued progress in this area. There is an all-time high now with the number of people in the United States identifying as none when asked what exactly. their religion is. So what do you think about organizing groups? Is there some reason they aren't more successful? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's an interesting question. I mean, one of the things that I particularly wanted to do when the executive director for the of the Society for Humanistic Judaism was here uh, in October was to reactivate an effort that Hertzi knows about where we tried to get athe the atheist, the organized atheists, the organized humanists, the organized secular Jews, the, the, the organized secular Muslims and so on together to try to build a continuing working coalition. We have these different groups um, and, uh, you know, with the changing political climate in this country, it's it's more important than ever that people who believe in seeking truth through evidence and reason uh, work together as effectively as possible, uh, for one thing, to protect the institutions of our government, which the founders of our country, even though most of them had been raised Christian, had the sense to make entirely secular so that it would be neutral. Government would be entirely neutral as to people's beliefs. So there's uh, there, there are a couple of important things for people to consider. Uh, you know, we have organized humanists. We have the Minnesota humanists. We have the Minnesota atheists. We have the American atheists. We have uh, uh, the humanistic Jews. We have the Unitarians who, as my father used to say, believe that there is at most one God. And, uh, you know, and so, and, and, they, and, you know, it's interesting that the Unitarian, the first Unitarian society in Minneapolis has become a, a kind of a humanist hub. And that's a really good thing, but let's 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 make sure let's get some kind of a real umbrella organization of all of these groups working together. Plus, another thing you touched on for all of the people who are members of one of these organized groups, there are far more who aren't members of any of them, but who are who are secular, but are secular in various small towns or suburbs and just not connected with organizations. It's never been more important than it is now for people of this worldview 
to get organized and become doesn't even have to be just a political force, but a cultural force, a force for reason, a force for science, a force for civics education in the schools. I mean, all of these sorts of things. And we can work together with progressive people of faith on a lot of these things, too. So, no, it's something I feel, it's something I feel rather deeply, deeply about because uh, terrifying things are happening. Um. May I posit three explanations and you comment on them as to why maybe we haven't been I'll, quite so successful? I, I might handle two of the three, but go, right. go for right. it. <clears throat> well, of course, once you get a bunch of uh, secular people together, they are not a bunch of sheep in search of a shepherd. And That's true. And indeed, I've met members of groups where it seems I'm actually amongst a pack of wolves some of them fighting for who's going to be the alpha. Could it be that one thing is... I was going to say, well, not a question. I just have a comment. I, I liken it sometimes to herding cats. And as a person who has three cats, yeah. Yeah, I liken it. To her, I liken it. I know it exactly what you're saying. I liken it. I liken it to herding squirrels. <laughs> no, because one of the thing, one of the things about humanist, atheist, skeptics, free thinkers is that they're very autonomous individuals, aren't they? Um, and but I think I think they also have they we have a strong sense of what it means to work together democratically and giving everybody a voice and having the voice of of the of the collective of the group uh rise to the top. So I'm not talking about building a hierarchical a hierarchical kind of a, a thing at all. I'm also not talking about an art anarchic thing. I mean, so there has to be some kind of organization and consensus. That that's the genius of democracy. You know that uh you know hopefully all of these smart people who also have Pretty, a pretty strong sense of ethics will reason together and engage in informed argument, which is what Jefferson and Spinoza and Locke and everybody else knew was absolutely essential to the democratic process. I think we're better positioned. We are as well positioned to be role models for the democratic process as anybody is, especially when you look at the division and polarization in the institutions of our government right now. It's really, it's really rather tragic. Um, but I think you're right. It, it is a challenge. It is a challenge to get people who are not in favor of being sheep uh, to work in, the mo in, in highly organized ways. But coalitions can work. Coalitions can work. I, there's no question about that. Another frustration that I seem to notice is you get these different groups, these different secular groups, and their differences, you'd have to look under a microscope to find the philosophic difference, and yet they will argue tooth and nail, even though they are 99% congruent compared to the rest of humanity in their philosophic outlook and approach. Yeah, you're right. I mean, all I can say is amen to that one. I mean, you, you, said, you said it better than I would have said it. Actually, we, we say ramen, but, you know. <laughs> okay, ramen. They, do you say noodles, too? Oh, I am touched by his noodly goodness. <laughs> All right, well, please stay with us through the break, and we'll return to Atheist Talk with Joseph and Richard. Thank you very much. 
Welcome back to AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're tuned in to Atheist Talk, and I'm your host, Hertzy Hertz, talking with Joseph and Richard. Atheist Talk is produced with the funding from Minnesota Atheists and Cucumbers Restaurant in Edina, Minnesota. Please consider visiting our sponsors, and if you do, let them know you appreciate and support Atheist Talk, or their support of Atheist Talk. If you would like to advertise on the program and help keep us on the air, please contact us at radio at mnatheist.org. As for the here and now, if you'd like to get involved in the conversation with Joseph and Richard, you can call us at 952-946-6205, email us at radio at mnatheist.org, or tweet us at at Atheist Talk, or you can also use our Facebook page where I pretty sure I put up a thing on that. Yeah, I did. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> welcome back, Joseph and Richard. I got a comment that Joseph's being a lot nicer to me than I thought he would. <laughs> well, I think we're I was always, say, I think we're always <laughs> nice to our guests. Right no, I, well, yeah, I was going to be like, I'm, I'm, Joseph's always a sweetheart. Yeah, I know. I'm just, yeah, it's, oh. my, it's my radio interview anxiety or something. Oh. Like but anyway, we were on an interesting, we were on an interesting uh, thread right there. So. Yes, uh, please continue uh, your comment. Just before the break, I brought up that um, I've often been frustrated. Um, I'm a member of many uh, secular groups. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I could probably save a lot on dues if you guys would all just get together. It's <laughs> been my experience. Yeah, I thought we'd just create one umbrella group called SANE or something like that. But um, yeah, we were, we, were, we were discussing that, and I'd like your continued comments on divisions in the secular community along what I consider to be extremely minor philosophic differences. Yeah, I think in the bigger picture of the philosophy of all these different groups, uh, I think you're absolutely right. And I've experienced what you're talking about. Uh, You know, there are free thinkers who are humanists and atheists, and there are skeptics who are humanists and atheists, and yet they want their own particular tribal silo or whatever it is. But you know, one of the things, one of the things that's changing. It, I'm, I'm hoping that people will start thinking about the big picture, and 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 focus more on the common ground, which is far. They all have with each other, which is far greater than the differences, far greater. And and you know, when you consider what the proto-fascist uh, problems we're facing in this country right now, I'm hoping that people can get together and and think in terms of these larger, bigger picture kinds of issues about human rights, human dignity, keeping uh, our government neutral as to people's beliefs. If the evangelical Protestants would only understand that the First Amendment protects their rights as much as it protects the rights of uh, atheists and, and, and humanists and so on. Yeah, but the big picture, I mean, what we stand for in the broad sense is what should, I'm hope, hopefully, will be rising in people's consciousness because of the opposition, you know, the anti-democratic forces that we're facing right now. They're unified, we're not. Uh, Indeed. Well, that sort of leads into my third, um, my third challenge. In the first segment, I had said to you that uh, I sort of have three ideas as to why uh, perhaps we're not more successful in, in uh, creating large secular activist groups. And, and uh, here's my next thought. Let's say we take a religious group, but now you remove 
all the uh, the damnation and the coercion and the threats and that an invisible omnipotent deity will harm you and now you have a bunch of independent uh, free-thinking people and they tend to be like-minded and you get them together and they start talking mostly politics and you go to dinner with them and they talk politics and you go on a hike with them and they talk politics and every so often I find myself thinking can't we just go bowling or something can, can you yeah, right. do something which reminds me politics? of the book that great book bowling together or bowling alone you know, I don't know if you've heard of that. I'm sorry, I have not. Well, it's a it's really a commentary on the rise of radical individualism in our in our society, which is another which is another feature that I think maybe infects the secular world, maybe in certain ways more than it does the religious world, because it, one of the things that you see in say the evangelical Christian community is a very powerful sense of community. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the mega churches are like full service institutions. They have daycare, they have counseling, they have job fairs, they, they have their, sometimes their sanctuaries will convert into basketball courts. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's really extraordinary. And, and people are, people are starving for a sense of community. And so that, you know, and, and, and secular people are also, I would argue, starving for a sense of community, but they're so damned autonomous that they might not, they might not fully, fully appreciate it and say, until, say, maybe they have kids or something like that, if, you know, if they, if they go that way. Mm-hmm. I want to <laughs> give a nice plug for Minnesota Atheists because yeah. we, we, we do have bowling. Yeah, you have bowling. We have, okay. well, we have bowling for deities, which is once a month on Saturdays. Is uh, I have actually not gone myself, but I have pe- friends who go very often and they love it. Right. Um, no, I think we have actually a pretty decent you're also, group. You're also big baseball fans. You're big fans of the Mr. Paul Ains. That, um, we also have board games. <laughs> And you have board games. Yes, no, no, board but, games but see, you know, part good. of the challenge is, is, is building community. Uh, community, I mean, I grew up in small towns in New England, and uh, community was kind of just built into people's lives, even though they were Republicans, you know, and self-reliant. But, you know, they were self-reliant, balanced by help your neighbor and that kind of stuff. Where have you found the greatest community? I have found, you know, it, that's a really interesting question, and I appreciate you asking it. Um, when I was a kid, I grew up in really, I would say some of these small towns in Vermont were truly organic communities. Um, but then through my adult life, you know, as an academic and I, I, who identified with uh, the life of inquiry and so on, I didn't find community in academia to the, quite to the extent that I thought I would. Um, and I'll just share a little vignette to try to uh, make that point. Um, there was a new building being built on the campus where I was teaching in a neighboring state. I won't mention it. In a next door state, and uh, there was this big debate among faculty and staff and administration about who do we name it after. And I said, in a faculty meeting, I said, "Why don't you call it Ego?" And then everybody will think it's named after them. But, you know, seriously, I, I have found the greatest community, the smartest, warmest, most welcoming, most caring community in the, the humanistic congregation of, the, of uh, humanistic Judaism in uh, the Twin Cities, or I met. 
and likewise, and, and becoming a member of the board of the the Umbrella Society, I just find that a wonderful group. I, that's that's the greatest community I've ever found because it's got the balance of democracy and intelligence and caring for each other, and which I sense. You know, I I know that the humanists have the same thing within their groups here, and the atheists have the same thing within their group, and the skeptics and free thinkers have the same things in their group. All right. Well, we will return after the gay break for with our guests, Joseph and Richard. Please stay with us. I'm Hertzie Hertz, and you're listening to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Thank you for tuning in to Atheist Talk on AM 950 KTNF. I'm your host, Hertzie Hertz, and we're having what I would classify as a fascinating conversation with Joseph and Richard. If you'd like to get involved in the conversation this morning, you can call us at 952-946-6205, email us at radio at mnatheist.org, or tweet us at at Atheist Talk, or check out the Facebook page. Before we continue our conversation, there's a bit of housekeeping I need to attend to. I want to note our dedicated group of volunteers and the generous donations of you, our listeners. You help keep Atheist Talk on the air and in podcast form. I'd also like to note our donors of the week, which is Cynthia, and our new patron, which is Freethinker. Hold on one second. Oh, I just had it. Freethinker. And then there was a number, and he's pretty awesome because he also friended me on Facebook. So welcome to... Welcome our new donors. All right. If you're able to help with the donation, please consider doing so at our radio fund page or at our Patreon, where you can get extended interviews at www.patreon.com slash Atheist Talk. Minnesota Atheist is a 501c3 tax-deductible organization, and we couldn't do the show without you, and we appreciate your support. Music for Atheist Talk is by composer and member Brent Michael Davis and is used with permission. Please note all opinions are of the guest and host only and do not necessarily reflect those of Minnesota Atheists as an organization. And with that out of the way, let's get back to our conversation with Joseph and Richard. Welcome, Richard. Um, you know, as part of my research uh, on you, uh oh, I visited Ooh. the site Jews <laughs> for a Secular Democracy and discovered that you had uh, written a number of um, excellent, really well-written, well-thought um, uh, articles on that site. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about that site, your involvement with Judaism and secular Judaism and humanistic Judaism? Okay. Um, well, I'm. Uh, my involvement with... I was so attracted to Jewish... You know, my wife and I, you know, we went to synagogues over the decades and had our kids go and stuff. And but it gradually began to dawn on me that what attracted me to the the world the world of Judaism wasn't the religion, even though I'd been raised by my Methodist uh, preacher father to respect Judaism as not oppositional to Christianity but foundational. Um, but still, I found that the, what really attracted me was Jewish culture, the Jewish intellect, Jewish inquiry, the history of debate, you know, the Talmudic scholars, uh, the pre-adaptation that the Jewish world had to democracy because democracy is a debate and they were steeped in debate. And I think that made them adapted to modernity and made them – and so I just didn't – and I had – my roommates in college were all radical Jewish guys – 
from uh, New York, and uh, and um, I married a Jewish girl, I, you know. And I, but it was it, it was Jewish culture. It was it was inquiry. It was the whole intellectual life. And so, I I, I finally learned about this movement called Humanistic Judaism, which is the movement for the congregational movement for secular Jews. And about twenty percent of the Jewish world today is avowedly secular avowedly secular and they identify with Jewish culture just as I decided I wanted to do and as my wife has done all of her life. Um, and I would argue from my long experience uh, with uh, uh, people in the, who go to reform Jewish temples and so on that most of them or a great many of them, I don't want to offend anybody who might be listening, but I think a great many of them are really actually secular. Um, now, as far as Jews for a secular democracy goes, one of the reasons that I and a couple of other people in the, the humanistic Judaism movement wanted to start this initiative is because Jews have been, have been outsized in their support over the years for our secular governance institutions, the First Amendment, separation of church and state. And of course, it's because Jews have valued and appreciated the protections that they have had for their beliefs, thanks to our secular form of government. But because a universal value or almost universal value among Jews of all segments of belief within the Jewish world, uh, one of the a universal value is tikkun olam, repair the world. And so in keeping with that value, Jews for a secular democracy seeks to mobilize Jews to do what they've always done, which is work for the rights of others beyond their own world, other, particularly other minorities. It, it's interesting that if you read all, say, the anti-Semitism, the supposed rampant anti-Semitism in the Muslim world, for example, and it really is, it, it really does exist, um, but despite that image that so many people in the broader society have, say, of the Muslim world, Jews – just look at the, uh, the, the support the Jewish community has given in Minneapolis to the Somali community, the Muslim community here. Uh, the identification that Jews have with, with Muslims because they're a fellow minority. They're a different religion, but they're a fellow minority. I think, by the way, I think the rest of the secular world could learn some lessons from the fact that people are, you know, that there is this impetus for common ground despite, despite some differences. Um, so, yeah, Jews for a Secular Democracy is an initiative by the Society for Humanistic Judaism to organize Jews to work for the First Amendment and separation of church and state. But to do that for everybody. So it's kind of, you know, tikkun olam twice over, if you understand what I'm trying to say. It's we're working not just for our segment of the Jewish world, but for the entire Jewish world. We're asking the entire Jewish world to work for the rights of everyone, which Jews have a just ex astonishing record of having done for a long time through the ACLU and the Anti-Defamation League. Um, and one of my heroes, the, the notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who really, really deserves the Defender of Democracy Award, which I think we might engineer to give her. And, uh, and her, her, her minority dissent uh, in the Hobby Lobby case uh, 
how on earth, given our tradition and our history of secular governance in this country, how on earth her opinion was not the majority opinion of the Supreme Court? Just, I think it's a shame on the institution of the Supreme Court that it's become so right-leaning and it's and so political. Um, my Indeed. opinion. Uh, you write on uh, the site Jews for a Secular Democracy, and I think you've probably gotten 50% of the way there in what you just said, that Jews are uniquely positioned to support secular democracy. Yeah, because they have spent, they have spent so many centuries on the margins of so many societies, societies shunted aside, discriminated against, oppressed, and worse, and they've never lived under a system of government where there was protection of, of their rights and uh, which is one of the reasons they're so highly motivated. Uh, you know, another thing, another thing that's interesting is empathy. I mean, because of, because of Jew, the Jewish experience over many centuries of being the oppressed minority, they have a natural built-in empathy for other minorities. Which rather, which is rather striking when you consider that we have a president today who kind of stands for the opposite of uh, anything empathic uh, in his view of uh, the other. So I, you know, if you look at one of the great Jewish thinkers, Martin Buber talked about the, the I-thou relationship, you know, and then um, the great Jewish thinker Hillel who said, "Don't do to other people what you wouldn't want." done to yourself, which is, you could say, the, the Judaic version of the, 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 uh, the golden rule. But the golden rule is also, is also stated in another way by the great Jewish philosopher, also secular, uh, Baruch Spinoza, talked about the categorical imperative, you know, which is a way of talking about ethics derived from reason rather than from uh, some holy place up in the sky. So, yeah, there are a lot of reasons. There are a lot of power. There, there are a lot of things that uh, that make the Jewish perspective uh, on secular democracy very, very unique, and a lot of reasons why Jews, especially, see it as a very, very precious, precious thing. You know, uh, I have always been attracted to uh, secular humanistic Judaism. As an ethical, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. As an ethical rather than a spiritual religion, exactly. there are so many religions where the game is right thought leading to a better life after you die. Whereas Judaism, as an ethical religion, it is correct conduct in this life leading to a good experience in this life for everyone. And I've always found that a very attractive philosophy. And this, and what you just touched on leads me to my next question, which uh, I must confess I didn't think of until perhaps just before this broadcast, which is, have you, or um, perhaps amongst other people you know, have you noticed either a greater acceptance or a greater persecution of secular people in the last couple of decades? And I'll tell you why I, I ask this. I've noticed that in different societies, when a minority is very small, it can tend to escape persecution because it's not really a threat politically or philosophically. It's when it reaches a certain threshold percentage 
of the population that it attracts the attention of those in power. What are, what are your thoughts on the rise of secularism? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I, just as a, somewhat an aside that you, you reminded me of, I spent about 10 years working very closely with an Amish community. And they have their own very particular religious view, and it's a very minority view. But they're very small, so they don't threaten people. Plus, they're very nice people and so on. Um, on your question, one of the things that I find really intriguing is, I mean, secular humanists are still, you know, a, a minority of the population. But why does... Why does the the religious establishment and the political establishment, the conservative political establishment, why do they why do they hate and fear us so much? We don't have wealth, we don't have power. What we do have is logic and reason, and what we do have, thanks to our secular form of government, we because of because we are so at home with logic and reason and evidence based decision making. We do have the ability to win lawsuits in courts and so on. <laughs> but, you know, otherwise, I mean, why, why, are we, why are we feared so much? And so I have to, as a psychologist, I have to wonder, what's, what kind of deep insecurity, what kind of deep insecurities do some of these people of faith have? I mean, you know, for, for centuries, people of faith have argued about doubt. Well, I wonder, is doubt still alive and well in parts of the uh, underbelly of the religious world. Yeah. Actually, there, there's a podcaster who I listen to who kind of went into that where, you know, the biggest fears they have are things like, you know, equality of the LGBT community and such. and Equality know, they, of women. Yeah. And, and it's one of those, it's like, that that's their biggest fears. He went into it. I can't remember all of it, but we do actually have to go into our break before our final segment with Richard. So stay with us. And you're on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're tuned in to Atheist Talk, and I'm your host, Hertzy Hertz. And ah, we're having a great conversation here, and this is our final segment, alas, with Joseph and Richard. If you're curious about Minnesota Atheists, you can check out the Minnesota Atheist website. We have previous episodes, browse articles, book reviews, and peruse the calendar of upcoming events. You can also sign up for the Atheist Weekly email, which will give you links to upcoming events. We have a ton of activities going around the Twin Cities and the outlying suburbs. For example, today we have a meeting at the Rondo Library, where we'll be having a pre-holiday boot camp to help work to help you prep for inter, you know working with your family and you know, maybe not necessarily winning arguments, but kind of moving around them. All I know is it sounds absolutely awesome, and I will definitely be there. Uh, we'll also have the Winter Solstice Party on December 15th, where we'll have previous guest David Gamut performing. And Joseph, I know this is a shocker for you because I haven't told you yet, but we are going to have a spe super special holiday episode this year. Yay! Yes, so keep an eye on the Facebook, the Twitter, and Joseph, keep an eye on your email for more details about this. And anybody else who's a volunteer listening, yeah, you, I, I'm probably surprising you too-ish, except for 
couple. Anyways, but we're I am super excited about this this idea that we are putting together for the holidays, uh, especially because as many of you know, I'm not necessarily a holiday person. We do have a caller. We have Jim from Minneapolis on the line. Jim, welcome to Atheist Talk. Good morning. I was thinking about what Richard was just saying about how secular people being a small part of the population still draw a lot of ire. And I think it's because, now now these are all good things that we do, but I think for the most part they started hearing about us when we'd file court cases against things like In God We Trust, Prayer in School, and what we're doing from their viewpoint is attacking symbols. And symbols are not logic. Symbols are get right to the person's heart. And so the reaction is always going to be stronger than just somebody saying, I disagree. I don't know. What do you think? Well, that's a very, very thoughtful um, observation. Um, yeah, and people, like you're saying, they they endow symbols with a lot of uh, emotional, a lot of emotional meaning. Uh, and they feel that they represent uh, the nation, um, you know, it's interesting that the nation, they're, they're, when you say nation, you can mean one of two things. Uh, and I think a lot of times when people who are opposed to secularists, when they say the nations, they're, they're really talking about the majority culture within our, which, within our nation state, which by constitutional mandate is actually thoroughly secular. Uh, when we talk about the nation, we're much more likely to talk about uh, the nation state and the body of law that's uh, based on our constitution. I also think that another factor here, and this is getting a little bit more psychological, I think another factor here is that uh, secular people are are feared, I think, from the part of some religious fundamentalists because underneath what they fear is the modern world or what they fear and hate is the modern world, and we represent the modern world. We are the, but we are people, we are most directly heirs of the enlightenment that brought about modernity and uh, science and technology and higher education and advances in philosophy and so on. Uh, at democracy, uh, democracy and science, it's interesting how they both emerged and for similar kinds of reasons out of the enlightenment. And they don't, you know, people who are religious fundamentalists never came to terms with the Enlightenment. Um, I think. Thank oh, you. All right. Thank you very much, Jim. I also have to, to say that I think that, um, and I'm not sure how much of this is born from what Jim was saying about the, the symbols and such, but there definitely is a persecution complex that that a lot of the places seem to have of, you know, we're we're always being attacked by things like the red cups from Starbucks (laughs) (laughs) and such. And it's because, I mean, we are getting to the, to December and we all, you know, many of us know that that's when the whole war on Christmas starts where we say, Hey cities, can we not have religious stuff on public property? Right. And then my favorite is the religious people will say, okay, fine. We found a home for this on a church and ha, look, we still have it up. And, us as secularists are going, that's that's all we cared is that where it was. You just had right. to move it over. <laughs> yeah, you know, I actually, one of the things I worked on, I did a lot of work as, on, the, on the psychology of survival and ordeals and got to interview people who were real victims of real 
bad stuff, okay, like Holocaust survivors and so on. And I find that, you know, this victim complex, which I think is one of the reasons that there's all of these jokes about bad hair days, because a lot of the victim complex is really so trivial. Mm-hmm. It's really trivial. But it, it, but it, it expresses some it, – it has to express some deep-seated insecurities about the meaning of their lo- meaning of life or something like that. Um, so I think – but I think Joseph's on the verge of saying something here. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that leads in actually to my next question. And Richard, as this is our last segment and you have a background in so many things, including psychology, and you've got that little thoughtful expression going. Oh. <laughs> uh, and, you studi- and you have studied – I have a great face for radio. Okay. <laughs> Don't we all? Well, you have studied religious fundamentalism. What should we as a secular people currently living in a secular society with secular government understand about extremist religion that maybe because of our mindset we can't understand or we don't get yet? Oh, gosh. Um I, I really, I, I guess I'd, I'd, I'd repeat, I'd say again, you know, that it's a, it's a reaction against the modern world. A lot of these people, you know, people of faith, their, their sense of identity is a pre-enlightenment one, and uh, what an anthropologist might call, you know, it's all about identifying with people who are our kind and so on. And that's what an anthropologist would call uh, a tribal identity. But I think, but not to just uh, do a negative thing with with them. You know, we can. I think we can learn from the religious fundamentalists. We can learn some things about getting organized because they they are tremendously organized, and they and they do use symbols and so on. The problem is. They appeal to people's desire to deal with the world in in more general kinds of terms and not deal with specifics and particulars. Um, I would say so. that they, they, they tell people, they let people, um, they let people not have the inconvenient truth. I think which, that's, uh, yeah. That's, they, they, and, and let's be honest, they lie. That that's, a lot. They lie. I mean, because you know they they keep they they lie a lot. And if you look at the hypocrisy on the part of an appalling number of TV evangelists and so on, and when you find what what they've been covering up in their lives. But if we're coming to the end here, yeah, and- I want to thank both of you, Kurtzy. Pleasure to see you again, and Joseph. Thank you for doing the research and asking such sharp questions. Appreciate oh, it very much. Thank you for appearing on our show. Yes. Love to come you. back. Oh, yes. Next week will be another great episode. So join us then. Signing off. Have a wonderful day. Bye.